Uh, well, this morning, we are starting a new series uh, that I'm super excited about in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so if you want to turn there, uh, there is a Bible underneath your seat if you don't have one with you, um, or you can turn there in your own Bible or on your phone uh, to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and the, the, the page will be up there, 927. All right, and if, if you would, uh, would you just stand with me as I read the Word of God? We believe this is God's Word given to us, and so in reference to that, if you can, would you stand as we read this morning? Uh, starting in, in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will be, b- prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptizing uh, by John uh, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came out of the water, immediately uh, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice uh, and a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the, wild, with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Good morning, friends. How are we? All right, it's good to be with you all this morning, and I'm excited to jump in and begin this uh, new series in Mark's Gospel. Um, so if you, are, if you are brand new to Flourishing Grace, um, then welcome. It's a great time. It's a great time to be jumping in as we begin a new series. Uh, we're going to be in this uh, for, for quite a while, actually. Uh, we're going to be in, in Mark's Gospel, preaching through this for about 18 weeks, 17, 18 weeks. We're going to be sitting in this Gospel together. Um, however, we are going to take a pretty big break in the middle. We're going to take a break for Advent and then a break kind of in January. Um, So we'll do kind of two series in the middle of this, but it's going to take us all the way up to Easter, all the way up to Easter of of next year. So quite a while we're going to be uh, in this gospel together. Um, And the reason I I want to kind of lay all that out there for you is is this. I want to ask you to, to kind of lean in 
uh, for this season and to kind of hold fast for this season, to, 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 to settle in and to lean in. I think that for us as a church, for those of us who call Flourishing Grace Church home, you say, man, this is, this is my church. This is going to be an amazing season for us. I think that when, when the church, when any church preaches through a gospel, it is a formative time in the life of that church. It's a time where we get to kind of look in and, and to see a biography of Jesus' life and say, this, this is who we want to emulate. This is who we want to be like. And here's, here's a moment, here's a time where we can actually see that together and we can lean in and say, man, I, I want to be more like Jesus. And so we're going we're gonna to look at his life. We're going to go in depth in the life of Jesus over, over um, in the next several months here at Flourishing Grace. And, and so I want you to lean in, but also settle in. I realize that maybe kind of halfway through this, you might be like, man, we've been in this for a long time. Man, it's, it is a sweet and precious time in the life of our church. And so, so let us be a people who settle in. Let's be people who, who listen in. And let us be a people who every single week kind of ask the question, man, how do, I, how do I apply this to my life? How do I become more like Jesus as we walk through this gospel together, the gospel of Mark. Uh, this morning, we're going to be, we're gonna be ch- taking off kind of a big chunk. The first 15 verses, there's a lot going on here. Kind of, kind of as I was preparing this week, I was like, man, maybe we should have just done verse 1. Um, but we're going to do a, the first 15 verses. So it's going to be a lot for us today. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, we're going to answer the question, who is Mark? Who is this? Kind of as we get into this, who, who is Mark? We're going we're gonna to look at what does Mark believe? Uh, who does Mark believe Jesus is? And why does Mark believe this about Jesus? So, so who is Mark? Who does Mark believe Jesus is? And why does Mark believe this about Jesus, right? So as we get in, I want to kind of set the, the, the framework and the context. I want to give you a sermon that you can maybe come back to and listen to in the future, maybe halfway through this series, and, and just to remind yourself, okay, who, who is our author? What, what, what's, what's the story? Who's Mark? What's the context? Why is he writing this? And so we're going to kind of open up today um, do, doing a lot of that work. So it'll be a little bit different than uh, a normal sermon here at Flourishing Grace. We're going to do a lot of background work this morning. So let's just jump right in and answer the question, who, who was Mark? Who is Mark, right? Um, often when, I, when we ask kids, I like to stump uh, our teens in particular, right? You say, okay, who, who were Jesus' 12 disciples? And, and they immediately, they, they, they list the, the four gospels, right? They're like, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Peter, uh, Paul. I'm like, hang on, hold on. You just listed six people and only three of them are his disciples. Um, no, Mark was not, Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. He, he was not. Um, in fact, Mark, most of the, the, the accounts, you know, this is, a, this is, this is a, a, the story of Jesus' life. It, these, are, these are detailed historical events that happen in Jesus' life. And 99.9% of them, Mark was not there. Mark did not see this happen. There is, it is believed that there is one story in the Gospel of Mark where Mark actually writes himself in the story. Um, we, we'll get there when we get there. We're not going to talk about it today. It's going to come much later in the series. But there is one point where uh, scholars believe that maybe Mark is describing himself in, in this piece. But for the most part, Mark wasn't there. He's not one of the original 
12 disciples. He didn't uh, kind of have a front row seat in the Jesus's life. We don't really hear much about Mark at all until Acts 12. In Acts 12 is where we first see Mark, and he's known as John Mark. John Mark, Acts 12, uh, and, and the, the setting of Acts 12 is Peter, who was one of the original 12 disciples, Peter is arrested in Jerusalem, and he is, he's in prison, and in, in an angel busts him out of jail in Acts 12. And, and Peter, from there, Peter goes to a house in Jerusalem where he knows uh, that's where everybody's going to be gathered. And sure enough, the whole church is gathered in this house, right? It is the gathering place, right? You, you, guys, you guys know the spot when you're in, like in high school, the place where everybody hangs out. You can just show up and you just know that's where everybody's going to be. Peter goes to that house. He knows where the church is going to be, where the people who love Jesus are going to be. And they're there praying for Peter, who's in in prison, although he's now been busted out by an angel. That house, we find out, belongs to John Mark's mom. Her name was Mary. Now, it's not Mary, Jesus' mom. It's not Mary Magdalene. Um, it's a different Mary. Mary is a very popular name in first century Israel. Um, so John Mark's mom, it's her house. And there's a lot that scholars kind of assume based on just that alone, right? Now, this is all assumption. We don't, we don't really know for sure, but a lot of people assume um, that John Mark, right, it grew up in a, in a fairly Christian home where his mom, right, was a, was a follower of Jesus. That's a pretty safe assumption um, if, if the church is meeting in her house. But a lot of people also assume that, man, if John Mark had a house big enough for the church to meet in in Jerusalem, may, maybe John Mark had a pretty wealthy family. Now, we don't, we don't know that for sure, but that's what a lot of scholars would, would argue and believe just based on the little evidence that we have. But really, we don't know much about John Mark until later in that chapter, he, he goes on a missionary journey uh, with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are going on this missionary journey, and John Mark comes along kind of as, as their assistant, right? Kind of as their, like, administrative guy. He, he, his job is to kind of take care of all the details, to make sure everybody's getting fed, to make sure they have a place to stay that night. He, he's going to take care of all the details so that they can focus in on preaching the gospel. They can focus in on healing. They can focus in on, 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 on the people who they're meeting and encountering, right? John Mark's job is just kind of take care of the details. However... John Mark doesn't make it very far on this journey. Very, very quickly into this journey, they arrive, um, they, they arrive in Antioch, and John Mark's like, I, I want to go home. Um, and so John Mark ends up going back to Jerusalem. And it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal until later in Acts 15, we find out that Paul wasn't, wasn't too thrilled with that. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to go on another missionary journey. And Barnabas is like, hey, let's, let's take John Mark. And Paul's like, no way. I'm not taking that guy. And it actually turns into a bit of a heated argument. So much so that, that Barnabas and Paul separate. Bar Barnabas ends up going on his own missionary journey, taking John Mark with him. And Paul goes on his missionary journey, taking Silas with him. Um, and so there's a, some tension there between Paul and and Barnabas, or sorry, Paul and John Mark and Barnabas. Um, and and our scholars read into this a lot, and it's easy to read into it. It's easy to make a lot of assumptions about it. Here's my most kind of generous read. Now, I'm just going to be fair warning. This is an assumption, but it's kind of my generous read of what's going on. I believe that, that John Mark is a pretty young kid, okay? 
Um, uh, he's, not, he's not as old as Paul. He's not as old as Peter. He's a, he's a pretty young kid, right? When, when the church is gathering in his mom's house, um, he, he's, a, he's a boy. And so he goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas as a pretty young kid. It's the first time he's, he's that far from home. Um, and, and I remember when I was in, in college going on a trip to the Dominican by myself, and it was, so I was supposed to be there for a long time, and I got there, and it wasn't very long before I was getting pretty, pretty dang homesick. It was hot and humid and sticky, and I didn't speak the language, and I was trying to, I was trying to learn, and it was, I was struggling, um, didn't have any friends, completely isolated, and it wasn't long before I wanted to go home. And, and so in, in my mind, I can, I can sympathize with John Mark, and I can understand his desire to go home. And, but I can also sympathize with Paul. This reality of like, man, no, 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 I, I, that what I'm doing is important. And that I have a critical mission that I need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and I need somebody I can count on. And so, no, you can't come with me. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. But no, I'm not, I'm not going to trust you again. I can't, I can't rely on you. I need somebody that I can trust and rely on. I can sympathize with both of these guys, and, uh, guys, and I can understand where, where they're coming from on this. But the long story short, right, John Mark goes back to Jerusalem. And who is who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Come on, church. Who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Who's leading it? Peter. There we go. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Austin. Peter. Peter's, Peter's leading the church in Jerusalem. P- Peter is the leader of this church. And so John Mark kind of does the same thing under Peter. He becomes Peter's assistant and begins, begins to, to work with Peter. And this, this is where we believe the gospel of Mark comes from. It's really Peter's gospel. Peter sits down with John Mark, and we get this from an, an early uh, church father. An early church father kind of wrote these notes about how the gospel of Mark came to be. And he says that it comes from Peter. Peter sits down, and he dictates the words. John Mark writes it down. And this actually makes a lot of sense. Because when we look at Mark's gospel, it's, it's, there's a general uh, kind of chronology to it. But when we stack it next to the first in accounts of, of, of Matthew and John, it's not in the exact same order. John Mark is, is writing this. He's writing these factual accounts, but he's putting them in his, in his own order. In his own order. Because there's, a, there's themes and there's ideas that he wants you and I, the readers, to pick up on along the way. And so what we see, we see these kind of key themes that are brought out throughout this gospel. You're going to see these as we walk through these over the next weeks and months. You're going to see the authority of King Jesus. This is a big theme right off the gate. You're going to begin to see this uh, this week and next week and the following week. Jesus as king has authority over all things. He has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over sickness and death. He has authority over our lives. He has authority over demons. You're going to see all of this, this, this theme of authority of Jesus as we get into this. There's, the authority, there's this theme of the tenderness of Jesus, the tenderness of King Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is a tender and merciful king. Uh, John Mark writes in... Um, kind of a lot in the middle of this, the failures of the disciples. Just, he kind of paints the disciples um, in not a very great light. Um, Their failures, their mistakes, their inability to understand. And Jesus 
is the highlighted as one who is kind and tender and loving in all in the midst of all of those mistakes and failures. The tenderness of King Jesus is a major theme in, in John Mark's gospel. And then finally, the sacrifice or the cross of King Jesus is a major theme that you're going to see. Uh, the sacrificial king, the one who is willing to lay down his life for the sake of those whom he loves. And so those are the themes that we're going to pick up along the way. And if you notice, all of those are couched in Jesus as king. This is the major thrust of Mark's gospel. Jesus is king. And there's one place in Mark's gospel where he gives his his own opinion. The whole gospel is just, it's just a biography. It's factual events recalling these facts of Jesus' life. Except for one place, there's one verse where Mark gives his opinion. He says, here's what I believe about Jesus. And this leads us to kind of our second point this morning. Who does Mark believe Jesus is? And we see it in Mark 1, verse 1. Mark says this, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, it's a new thing, it's a new work, of the gospel, the, the euangelion, the, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not Mary and Joseph Christ. Um, it's a title given him, Christos, um, coming from Messiah. The Messiah was the promised king, the son of God. And so if I can kind of restate verse 1 in my own words, if I can be so bold to do so, to kind of flush it out for us a little bit, right? Mark is saying the beginning of the good news of Jesus the promised Savior King, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the promised Savior King, the Son of God. This is the only place in the entire, in the entire gospel where Mark kind of inserts his opinion. This is who he believes Jesus is. And so let's unpack this briefly together. Um, the beginning, Mark says, the beginning, right? God is beginning a new work. There's a new thing happening here that, that, that is going to be revolutionary and transformative, not just for you, not just for me, but for the entire created order, for the cosmos. God is doing a new thing. There's a new thing beginning, the beginning of the good news. Yes, this is a recalling of factual events about Jesus' life, but there's a specific order to this. Mark views this not so much a story but the good news, the story of salvation, there's good news. And we see this theme appear again and again and again and again and again throughout Mark's gospel. The King Jesus' power to save, to, to make the, the, the lame walk again, to save the demon-possessed, to save uh, th those who are caught up in religion, to save. King Jesus has the power to save, and then ultimately the power to save and restore all things to save us from sin and death. This is good news. The good news of Jesus. The good news is not a set of beliefs or values. It's a person. Jesus. And Jesus is the promised Savior King. 
Mark is beginning the argument by saying the good news, the good news promised by God has been fulfilled in our time. The Savior King has come. And the rest of this work, the rest of Mark's gospel is going to lay out this and demonstrate the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior King. We're going to see it even this morning. And then lastly, the King is the Son of God. Jesus is not just a king. He's king of all. He is the son of God, God in the flesh. Now here's the reality. This, all of that, verse 1, is a big claim. If I said to you, listen, God is doing a brand new work. A transform, God is stepping into time. He's putting on flesh. It's a brand new thing. He's fulfilling prophecies of old. And, he, and he is, he's, he's doing this massive thing. And someone has come and they have their promised one. He's fulfilling a promise of, of hundreds of maybe thousands of years old. You better be able to back it up. Like you can't just state that and walk away. And Mark doesn't state it and walk away. At first glance, it appears that Mark kind of makes that statement and then launches into the story, but he doesn't. Mark makes that statement, and the first thing he does is he begins to back that up with evidence, which leads us to the next piece. Why does Mark believe this about Jesus? Why does he believe this about Jesus? Mark believes this is the good news because it is the fulfillment of everything that God promised in the Old Testament. That what we're about to read in the, in the coming pages, in the coming chapters of Mark, in the coming weeks and months here at Flourishing Grace, is the fulfillment of prophecies that are hundreds and even thousands of years old. Mark begins by quoting a prophecy, and it's really two prophecies. It's a prophecy from Isaiah, who, who, it's, who it's kind of attributed to in Mark, but it's also Malachi. They're kind of in, entangled here. And it reads this way in the very, in the very next verse, verse 2 and 3. It says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You see, it's a common understanding in the, for the Jews of that day that one day God would send, God would send a Savior King known as the Messiah. A savior king who would, who would rebuild and restore the nation of Israel, make them a powerful nation once again. And through, through Israel and through the might of this king would restore order to the entire world, would bring, would bring peace and harmony to the entire world. And all of the Old Testament is viewed through this lens. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament, there is some dark and heavy stuff that deals with what's happening in that day, in that moment, whether it's the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Persians or the Medes, right? There's some deep and heavy things that are happening, but they all, all of them, have a thread of hope that runs through every single one of those prophecies. Every single one of those prophets speaks of one who's coming, a greater king, a promise of God to restore and redeem. This is a theme that beats in the heart of every Israelite. And so these, the people who, who are hearing this and reading Mark's gospel, the original audience would have, would, have, would have had this anticipation, would have known instantly that the prophecies of old. And one of those prophecies is that there's going to come one 
before the Messiah who will pave the way, who will make straight the paths, one who will come in the wilderness proclaiming this new way, making straight the paths of the Messiah. And Mark is saying, that's happened. That's happened. And so he's got to be able to point to that. He, if, if this is true, if it's true that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior King, the promised one of God, then you ought to be able to point to the one who came before him. And this is exactly what Mark is doing. In the very next verse, the very next line says, verse 4, John appeared. Mark is building this case. He's building an argument. And our first witness is John, John the Baptist. In verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness in proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John did just that. He prepared the way of Jesus. This is what Mark is trying to open our eyes to, to show that John is the promised one, the one who was promised in Isaiah 700 years earlier. John's the one who came and fulfilled that prophecy. John is the one who made the path straight for the coming Messiah. And the coming Messiah is Jesus, the Savior King. Now, for you and I, the question is simple. Wait a second. How is that? Preparing the way of Jesus. How is this crazy guy in the wilderness who everybody's going out to see and everybody's getting baptized and he's calling them to confess their sins, how is this preparing the way of Jesus? Let's pause for a minute. Let's, let's look in a little bit deeper in this. John has two central messages. And we see them right here in Mark's gospel. There's two things that John preaches again and again and again and again and again. First, we see it in verse 4. In verse 4, we see that he, the proclaiming the need for baptism, right? Or, or maybe a better way to say it is the need for cleansing, the need for washing. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is telling people and he's proclaiming to people that they are sinful. You and I, we are sinful people. We cannot do it on our own. We're far from God because of our sin. We are a broken people who are far from God. We are not a people who are ready for a Savior King because we're too broken for a Savior King. We're not a people who can restore and redeem ourselves. We are people who need confession. We, need people, we are people who need to confess our sins. We need people who need to be cleansed. We need people who be, we're people who need to be washed. We're a broken people. and We live in a broken world. And the second message we see in verse 7 one is coming who is far mightier than I, so mighty that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. There's one coming who's even greater than I. You think you're ready? You're not ready. You're sinful and broken. I, and I'm, I'm calling you to repentance. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You're not ready for that. Don't you understand? Here's what John's doing. 
John is preparing us for the good news. Here at Flourishing Grace, if you've been around, you've heard me say this at least a dozen times, okay? Good news, good news always, 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 always comes out of, at the very least, the chance of bad news. Every single time, right? If your kid comes home from school and he has straight A's, that's good news. That's good news. That's, that's we're, we're going out for ice cream. Where do you want to go to, for, for dinner? You get to pick. You get to choose. It's worthy of celebration and praise. You got straight A's. That's great. Why is it good news? Because there's a chance. Comes home with straight F's. Okay? That's why it's good news. Now, good news is directly proportionate to the extent of the bad news. If the doctor calls and there's a cure... For your disease, for, that's really, really good news. Why is it good news? Because you had an incurable disease. And having a cure, when the doctor calls and there's a cure for what you have, that's better news than your kid coming home with a four-card of straight A's. Why is it better than your kid having straight A's? Because an incurable disease is worse than F's. So the better the good news By nature, the worse the bad news. And friends, here it is. The gospel is the best news ever. And if that's true, it must, by necessity, come out of the worst news ever. And this is what John the Baptist is doing. He is is opening our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive and to understand the bad news. You are not ready to receive the king. You are broken. You are sinful. You are not as good as you think you are. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to be on your knees. You need to understand that you are far from God and an eternal separation from him is what awaits you. God is, John is preparing us, right? So often from Jesus, we hear this, this is same, right? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Those who have eyes to see, let them see. What Jesus is communicating is that those who have a heart to receive this, a heart that is humble, a posture that is humble, people who know their need for a Savior. This is why the religious elites never come around to Jesus, It's the prostitutes and the drunks and the sinners, the tax collectors, because they know, they know who they are. And one of the greatest impediments to the work of Jesus in your life, if not the greatest impediment, is simply a high view of ourselves, a lack of understanding our brokenness. And right out of the gate, Mark exposes us. He's showing us uh, this to us through John the Baptist. Uh, recently, right now, actually, we're, we're having a path groups class that's meeting here at Flourishing Grace on, on Tuesday nights. Uh, we, we've, shift, we've shifted our thinking. We're launching this new ministry called Path Groups. And in order to get into a path group, you've got to go through the path group course. And one of the things that we did in, in the path group course is we had a, a, a kind of a sign-up form. And, the, and the, the hope or the intent was to kind of get information to see where people are at spiritually so that we could get them in the right group and kind of pair them with people that could, that could help them along in their journey. And, and we could kind of balance that out. But what it did is it exposed, unintentionally, it exposed our view of ourselves 
So we asked these questions. We gave you the opportunity to, to rate yourself on a scale of one to five. Like, where are you at spiritually? Like, one is like, man, I'm really, 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 really not doing well. And five is like, I'm basically Jesus, okay? Um, and we asked questions. Like, how, how, is, how is your prayer? Right? You kind of these disciplines of the Christian life. How are you doing in prayer? How's silence and solitude? How's fasting? Right? How's your time in the Word? I mean, how, how's your generosity? Right? How, where are you doing? And almost everybody put four. Because, like, four is like the cop-out. It's like, well, I'm not, okay, I'm not Jesus. I'll give you that. But I'm pretty dang good. All right? And the reality is, I'm not picking on you. I mean, I'm picking on you. Uh, I, some of you, I like, well, look at it. I was like, I know you. I know what you do with your weekends. And you put a five on Sabbath. I, like, I, I, the, my point is this. As long as we think we're good, we're not ready for the gospel. We're not ready for the good news. You will never know how sweet and how wonderful and how delightful Jesus is, you will never know the extent of the best news ever as long as you think that you're good. It's only when you know the extent of the bad news will you know how sweet the good news is. And this is what John the Baptist is doing. For those of you who are interested in baptism, right, we, we talked about this earlier, we have that baptism class coming up on October 31st. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you in that. We're going to talk about baptism more more uh, at that time. But we got to move on. The second witness, the second one that we see is God himself, right? Mark's like, okay, if, if that's not good enough for you, this, this fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy through John the Baptist, if that's not good enough for you, let me give you one more. God himself. At the baptism of Jesus, this is what we see in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Right? Jesus is baptized, not as a confession of his sins, because he is sinless, but rather, Jesus is baptized. Baptism agrees with John and declares that sin is our greatest problem. And I, Jesus, I've come to solve it. Jesus' baptism is, is, is agreeing with John and agreeing that same. And sin is the greatest problem of the world. It's not your boss. It's not your, your, your lack of money. It's not your job. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your family of origin. The greatest problem in your life is sin. It's the curse that we live under, and we are, we are controlled by it. We're trapped by it, and it's the greatest issue. And Jesus' baptism is agreeing with this. We need to be cleansed. We need to be freed from sin, and I've come to solve it. And then the voice of God speaks. This whole picture, what Mark is doing here, Peter through Mark, they're drawing their original audience's minds back to Genesis 1. 
The, the early Israelite audience would have, would have known this instantly. They would have put this together in the beginning, the beginning of the gospel, right? This, this Genesis 1 link between the two. God is doing a new thing, a new work. A new work is happening. And God speaks. He speaks his love over his son as he spoke the universe into creation. And the spirit flutters like a dove over Jesus, just like the spirit fluttered over the waters in the beginning. John is saying, or John Mark is saying, this is a new work. God is beginning a new thing. Adam and Eve have unraveled the fabric of creation, and Jesus has come to restore it. This is the beginning of a new work and a new kingdom with a new king, and his name is Jesus. And God speaking, if that's not enough evidence, I don't know what is. This is why so many of John's, John the Baptist's disciples leave John the Baptist and, and they go to Jesus. They're like, hey, hey man, thanks so much for everything, but I'm following this guy, right? And Andrew, who was one of John's Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples, right? And his brother Peter, he runs home. He meets Jesus. He runs home, grabs his brother. He's like, man, you've got to come. The Messiah is here. This is how Peter encounters Jesus. Because the voice of God spoke love and affection over Jesus. Lastly, the last evidence that Mark gives is Jesus himself. In verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus himself says this, and he says this again and again and again and again. It's the thing that Jesus talks about more than he talks about anything else. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is here. Everything that the entire Old Testament is pointing you to is here. It has arrived. Today is the day that it begins. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has a king, and it's me, Jesus. Jesus is king. And he's declaring this about himself he is, he is the, the beginner, the starter of this new kingdom. He's the establisher of this new kingdom, this new way. I said a minute ago that in, in Genesis 3, the fabric of creation was unraveled. This, this, this created order was broken when, when you and I, when we, humanity, sinned and sin enters the world. And from that moment, everything that it was intended to be is broken and fractured. And Jesus is saying, I'm restoring it. A new way, a new heaven, a new earth, a new king that will rule and reign and, re, and, 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 and redeem all that we have broken. This is who Jesus is declaring himself to be the restorer of all things, the promised Savior King. And he doesn't leave it there. He asks us to make a response to this. In verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he calls you to something, and he calls me to something. He says, repent and believe in the good news. 
Do you believe this? This argument that Mark is laying out for us right from the beginning that, that Jesus is the Savior King, that God has begun to restore what we have broken, what we have unraveled, what we have fractured, what we have stained. He is cleansing. He is making right. He is putting back together. He is straightening what we have bent. And he's doing it all through Jesus. Will you repent? Will you turn away from the kingdoms of this world? All these things that promise you, all these, all these false promises, and you know that they're not going to fulfill. You know they're not going to bring you life. You know they're not going to bring you joy. Will you turn from these false promises and turn to this promise that Jesus makes right here in the first chapter of John? Will you repent from that? Will you, return, will you repent and turn from your own kingdoms and turn to his kingdom? This is the call of Jesus right out of the gate. And what we're going to see over the next several weeks is Mark continue to establish this truth. That there's a new kingdom and a new king who is worthy to be followed with all of our lives. And my, my, my hope is, my hope is that today or over the next few weeks, that we will see repentance permeate the life of flourishing grace. A turning from our way of life and the way of culture and the way of the world to a turning to the way of Jesus and say, this is the way I want to live my life. As we kind of walk through this biography of Jesus and we see his life on display, that every single week you'll ask the question, how do I emulate that? How do I apply Jesus' way of life to my life? And you'll find every week things that you can repent of, you can turn away from, in order to turn towards Jesus because he's king and he's worthy of every single ounce of it. And he's the son of God and he's worthy to be followed and worshiped and praised. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us hearts to receive your word, that we would be a people who are humbled, people who see sin as our greatest problem, as rescuing, as our greatest need. We need to be rescued from it, and we cannot do it on our own. Would you help us to release our grasp on culture and release our grasp on religion? That we would not be a people who say, man, I can do this. I can figure this out. Or there must be a way, a different way. Help us be a people who cling to you is the only way find redemption and restoration. Let us cling to you as the Savior King, the Son of God, the greatest days ever. Pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.